Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Jude McGowan. I'm a dyslexic, an actor and a writer. And now I'm a podcaster. This podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation, whose mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. My guest today is John Hoke, Nike's Chief Design Officer. He leads Nike's design teams, responsible for envisioning the future of sport. Chances are, if you have worn or purchased a Nike product in the last 10 years, you've worn something he has approved or designed. He's been with the sporting giants since 1992. Hoke speaks, writes, and is a fervent promoter of the power and possibility of design and creativity and the importance of sustainability. Of his work, he says, for us, the goal is goosebumps, a visceral reaction to something beautiful, because the best design should captivate at first glance. And his relationship to his dyslexia has equal power and clarity. Of it, he says, I came to this idea that my dyslexia wasn't actually a burden. It was a gift because it made me look at the world differently. I found talking to John so inspiring. He's an innovator, a visionary, and crucially, he's a solver of problems. And at the forefront of his thinking is climate change. We talked about climate change. We talked about design. We talked about the people and the things that have inspired him on his journey. And all of it was was just wonderful. My biggest takeaway from my chat with John was, was an affirmation, really, that having talent is not enough, that hard work is needed to self-actualize. If, you, if you're ambitious, if you have a dream, if you have something that you want to achieve, you have a, an aptitude for, a talent for, that is not enough. You need to push yourself as well. I loved making this episode and I really hope you enjoy it. All right, well, first things first, I want to say hello and welcome to John. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Jude. Yeah, I am. I'm thrilled to be with you. This is a... <laughs> A, a time in the world and a time for creative individuals and for dyslexics to learn from each other and to be able to tell our stories and promote, I, I think, a sense of optimism and looking at this dyslexia from a slightly different vantage point and finding it to be more of a gift than I think it has um, been understood to date. So I, I am absolutely thrilled to be here and to be able to share with you and your audiences some of my experiences. Well, I want to jump in right there on the theme of spreading optimism and how how you found design. So how you found this thing that your creativity, your gift, the prism with which it, it then can be filtered out into the world. How did you find design? You know, I often say that I think design found me, <laughs> you know, and I say that because as a very young boy, you know, I, I, I came to this understanding of the way that I process the world. And, you know, I have this picture that I show audiences occasionally. It's a, a picture of me with my head turned, looking almost completely backwards. 
And I have this very fond memory of my mom uh, showing me this photograph throughout my life and saying to me in a very positive way that was, you know, nurturing, you know, John, you just see the world differently. And I've used that as a sort of metaphor and a visual cue in my life. And, and it helped me because as a young boy, you know, as I started into my grade school years, I quickly learned that I, I had certain gifts that were great and I had other challenges that weren't so great. So I like to say that, you know, honestly, my, my native language was drawing, dude. And, and I used my ability to draw. And as a young boy, those are, those are doodles. But using my hand and a, a pencil, a pen, a, a brush, and that action of my hand and my mind working simultaneously and in a coordinated fashion helped me to discover a language. And that language was using drawing to frame ideas, to communicate things that I was seeing and was feeling and was understanding. And the simple act of drawing uh, objects, animals, sensations, <laughs> any composition really, was a way to express myself and a, and a way to um, discover the world around me through the tactility of a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. Yeah. Did you feel compelled to to be creative, to pick up that pen? Was that was that a compulsion or were you encouraged to do that? Was it something that just, just came naturally? You know, all three. Again, I think I I found that I had great penmanship. They used to say that back uh, years and years ago. And the penmanship wasn't really coordinated to the alphabet, the way the alphabet was drawn or the way it was used to convey meaning and words. Right. It was just lines together. And I was fastidious with those lines. And that was something that I just think came very naturally. I was blessed with a fairly decent hand-eye coordination. And just the time I spent with my hands and pencils and papers was sort of solidifying that. And, you know, then I would say I was also very fortunate to have my family, my parents and specifically, and, and friends and teachers around me whom were able to nourish this this gift that I had and, and help me place it in a way that made me feel like I was gifted versus somebody who was disabled. Yes. And I think part of that was just really working hard and, you know, finding it, finding that natural extension of another way I looked at languages. And that was through this, this love of drawing. And, you know, to go back to your question, uh, design for me became um, as important as breathing because I was somebody who was always looking at things and wondering, what if? And compelled to think about what if I did this differently this way, or what if I thought about you know making it this way, or 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 considering it that way. And so, even at a tender young age in grade school, you know, I I just knew I was destined to do something in the creative fields. I didn't know what that was, to be quite honest with you, Judah, and, and my parents didn't know. And I think my parents were the parents of a, a dyslexic boy back in the 70s and early 80s. And the concerns at the time were concerns, I think, that still face students and parents today, which is, 
how do I help my student child navigate a world that is structured around different language? And how do I help them find and, and nourish those gifts that they have? And so that that was something that, you know, both my parents and I, even up through high school and university, et cetera, were trying to find uh, workarounds and trying to find bridges to continue my academic education and my my intellect and my intellect curiosity without sort of getting pigeonholed into uh, a specific class of disability. Yeah. Well, I mean, drawing for me was essential for me learning how to read. So I was I was actually born half deaf. So my dyslexia um, intersects with with being half deaf. So I have oh, problems with the phonetic phonetic alphabet and you know, some scratches on the paper, you know, would mean X and it would mean Y. And they, the only way I could sort of make sense of it was to, was to draw. So an F sound for a frog, I'd draw the frog. So I think, again, that's, that's a testament to what feels like the teachers that we were both blessed with, that they were, they understood an innate talent that could be funneled into helping us to learn how to read and discern meaning from from uh, from language on the on the written page this this is often a question that i that occurs to me from an evolutionary standpoint what do you think <laughs> and this this we are we're, we're going off tangent a little bit but what do you think was the sort of evolutionary um reason for dyslexic was it that so because you've talked about problem solving so much and so eloquently that yep. you you're, you're just you're problem solving all the time so say if if you know people who aren't dyslexic they're trying to get honey out of a tree and they can't think of a way and then the dyslexic person thinks well i'll tell you what if three of us stand on each other's heads we can get up there simpler <laughs> exactly is that something that's occurred to you i of, i often think about that i find myself thinking like why from an evolutionary standpoint because we've only had language for ten thousand years yeah five ten thousand years why was it that we were a necessity because surely we would have died out if we weren't a necessity sure well you know one of the common denominators that i've found with anybody who I've met that has dyslexia is this paradox of adversity, I'll, I'll call it, where if the adversity is the challenges of skewing to the mean of the way people learn language, mathematics, the processing of the brain, the eyes, the hand, the mouth, etc., the common denominator with the dyslexics that I'm aware of is a wild and wonderful imagination yes and uh, a creative spirit and i link those two to for me it's uh it's a little bit about non-binary thinking illogical thinking yes illustrative imaginative thinking oh yeah and you know using years in your your example of the honey out of the tree logic and computation will only get you so far yes and i think in terms of darwinian evolution one of the pieces of humanity that I think are central to the human experience is a sense of wide-eyed wonder, broad imagination, and creativity. Even today, algorithms and artificial intelligence can't replicate that illogical, imaginative, non-binary thinking. And so I, yeah. I'm actually very bullish on something I would call, when I write my book, it will be the dyslexic advantage. And that advantage will be with dyslexic individuals because much of our learning and much of our wisdom will be done through artificial intelligences. Yes. And, and that's not a bad thing. Mm. That's a great thing. 
but you know, kind of be able to break through the tremendous problem sets of today and tomorrow, it's going to require creative thinking. And today, that is uniquely human. And yes, if dyslexics possess an advantage because of the way they learn, because of their processing ability, because of the gaze that they afford themselves on the world and problems around them, that's going to set a dyslexic individual up, I suspect, for great things. Absolutely. I mean, I haven't, I've spoken to eight different guests so far, and none of them have ever said that being dyslexic was a hindrance. They've actually all, they all view it as being a gift, yeah. as being an advantage. And I would love, because you've talked already about adversity and problems. Yeah. And you've talked about it often in, in lots of the interviews that I've, I've seen of yours, that that gives you, I believe, the advantage. And from what I can gather from what you've said, an advantage is because in your formative years, you had problems that other people didn't, you were something of an underdog. When you develop these workarounds, it then helps you to learn in other situations. I mean, I know in the, in the Marines uh, in America, and certainly in the SAS as well, it's all about how you learn. You know, they throw so many things at the soldiers. And it's the ones who are elite are the ones who, who know how to learn things. And I feel like being dyslexic, when you develop those workarounds, it then gives you the tools to learn, to learn other things as well. Great point. Yeah. And I, I just don't think there's really one way to learn. I think there is an averaged mean of how people learn, but the spectrum of learning is very wide and I suspect getting wider. Yeah. So it's sort of honoring that spectrum and those differences and the approach that all people bring, which I find fascinating, and that diversity of intellect and curiosity and imagination, again, I suspect are going to be just wonderful things that will be needed in our worlds going forward. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a, it'll be a counterweight, frankly, to the rise of the algorithms and the artificial intelligences that play incredibly meaningful roles in society today and tomorrow, no doubt, but we remain human. Yeah. And innately human is diversity, differences, and, and really loving that and using that to our advantage. Yeah. How much do you know about uh, what Finland are doing with the way they've, they've changed their education system? So they, they don't do any homework. They don't have classes. They have a set problem. So the whole class is set a problem they have to which will include within it economics. It might include designing something graphically on a computer. It might, you know, it might even uh, feature some acting. So it's all about a problem solving model. It's less about, well, it's a very industrial revolution model that we have in, in England, which suits one form of intelligence, you know, sit down, teacher will, will say something, you write it down, you might talk to your uh, neighbor and then you wash and repeat. Whereas in Finland, it's very, very different. I've seen some of that. Jude and I've been, you know, fortunate to see in this country, the U.S., um, a few different educational models and, and schools that I've participated in and been able to go to and look at and advise, et cetera. And I, what I really like about that, what you're describing, is recognizing that real problems today demand collaborative thinking, and yes, collaborative thinking demands different players play different roles. Every single person doing the same thing simultaneously can now be taken care of uh, with computers. Yeah. 
So whether that is drawing or acting or singing or sculpting or sewing or spelling, it's the full composition of problem solving that I just think is far more interesting for the world. It just it's a a more textured, richer set of investigations and with every ability is invited to that table, I, I guarantee you we're gonna have better outcomes. Yes. I guarantee you we're gonna be kinder. I guarantee you that the solution's gonna be that much better. Yeah. And can I ask this again, it, this <laughs> it's an opportunity for me as well as as a dyslexic to to ask somebody else whether this was their lived in experience of, of dyslexia, but do you feel like the struggles you had when you were younger, did that open you up? Did that make you more empathetic? Did that make you a more considerate person of other people? Without a doubt. Yeah. I, you know, I have important indelible memories as a child of being someone who understood that I was not like everybody else. And, you know, there was certainly a, a, a shame to that and a frustration. You know, why couldn't I do these simple tasks? Why can't I do what this person's doing? And so with that shame and frustration does, you know, require you as an individual to set your gaze with more kindness and to be able to be open to other people's challenges because you have challenges. Yeah. And our challenges being dyslexic are not outwardly facing challenges. They're not obvious to the general public. No. And, you know, a part of my journey in becoming more of a, uh, a spokesperson, an advocate for dyslexia, is that there is a power in, in being vulnerable and a power in showcasing that empathy. I happened to go to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and its founder was Benjamin Franklin. And <laughs> a, part of the, uh, a part of the teachings of the school were to, you got a small book that was describing some of the wonderful quotes of uh, Benjamin Franklin, a U.S. president. Yeah, he's a and, fascinating yeah, man. Really fascinating man. And, and, you know, this is the guy that infamously flew a kite with a key tied to the string and, of course, <laughs> didn't create but was able to understand electricity. Yeah. And of all the quotes that I took from that book, one that I, I land on a lot he has a quote that says, and I'm paraphrasing, Jude, so forgive me, something similar to, it's best to hang a lantern on your fears. And what I took from that was that when you put fear or you put problems or things that you're challenged with in the dark, they get bigger and scarier. Yes. When you shine a light on those things, they get smaller and smaller. And so I, I've just found in talking about my challenges and the shame and the pain, et cetera, has just been a healing healing for me, for sure. But more importantly, sharing that with other people so that we can all say, hey, that's, that's okay. And we all have challenges. Every single person walking the planet is dealing with something. And I think the more we share that with each other, the kinder we'll be. And I would like to see nothing more than the rise of empathy in 2020 and beyond. I think we're going to need. I think we're going to need that, uh, my friend, just because empathic people seek to understand first, not seeking to be understood. Yes, absolutely. I mean, dear listener, you're listening to us, and sadly, the U.S. is ravaged by probably the worst wildfires 
I think certainly they've been in the last few years uh, worse than the ones that were a couple of years. One of my best friends, his wife's whole neighborhood was taken out in California. Where are you right now, John? I'm actually in uh, Portland, Oregon. And so oh, of course. Oregon of course. is under a evacuation threat. We are 10 days into historic wildfires that are ravaging our state and the west coast of the U.S. unprecedented. Yes. You know, I think we are sadly still debating whether this is due to climate change or not. <laughs> as if there's a debate. Yeah, I suspect it is. Yes. But setting the debate aside, as a human species, we are affecting our planet. Yes. And that those effects are taking hold far more rapidly and at a much faster clip and sequencing than we had thought. So in my role at Nike, you know, one of the things I stand tall on is my company's ability to change the dialogue with our consuming public about precious resources and the way that we create and the materials that we use, and then eventually the um, servicing model that we will work with consumers to make far better choices and hopefully make the planet, leave the planet better than we thought. I, I fundamentally believe that sports is the birthright of every generation. Yes. And now more than ever, the most important design problem that I face is not a sneaker, it's not a, it's not a t-shirt or a hoodie, it's not a building or an application. The design problem that is the most intense for me is how do we change the way we design so that we become as carbon neutral as possible and we are saving sport for every generation. Yeah, I mean, listen, as, as someone who is deeply concerned about the environment, I think almost in every interview I've, I've read of yours in certainly the last four or five years, you've talked very eloquently about the necessity of being conscious of the environment and uh, sustainability in terms of design. Were you ever concerned about kickback for that? Because uh, sadly, we do live in a world where people deny that this is climate change and they deny that, you know, that... <laughs> Yeah. These wildfires and the tornadoes and et cetera are myths that are made up. Were you concerned about that or were you, were you like, no, this, this absolutely has to be dealt with? Great question. And my quick answer is it's not one of a lack of caring. It's that I'm going to let the science inform my opinion. And the science is at this point almost irrefutable. So Will there be some who decide not to transact with Nike by virtue of, of our positions on the environment and, frankly, other things? And, and we're okay with that. I think, you know, the one thing I've learned through sports and working here at Nike is that, you know, being a leader at, at times is hard and leaders are purpose-led with values. Mm. And we have a purpose-led value that wants to sustain sports. We, as I mentioned, I think it is a, it is a generational gift. <laughs> yeah. And we, as one of the largest uh, sports companies in the world, play a role. And we play a role as designers within that company that is critical. And I like to say that, you know, I, I like to think of our designers as citizen designers, which is that you're not just blindly designing for blind consumption. That's not enough anymore. You have to really be thoughtful about the entire approach that you take to problem solving. Where are things sourced? How are they produced? Yes. How are they consolidated, shipped, used, cared for, loved, returned? 
brought back into a, a feedstock that's reused over and over again. I, I think that's really important. Yeah. I'm also being trained as an architect, uh, you know, I learned several other wonderful design adages, one of which I have loved and has helped me throughout my entire career. And it was done by, it was created by an architect, Louis Sullivan, a Chicago architect. And the essence was that form followed function. So there was a real connection between the physicality of the make and the build and the materials that were used connected to its actual function. The column held the building, the beam held the column, the brick was used as the face, and all those things had a purity and authenticity to them. And of course, that adage has rung true for modern design 80 years, and I've used that as an epitaph for, for certainly Nike, but I think that's not enough anymore. So I've most recently said, you know, for me, it's still form and function, but it's form and function following footprint. And what I mean is that it's no longer enough to solve for utility and beauty. You have to solve for utility and beauty along with sustainability. That, that, is, that is the only future that we have. And frankly, I think that that's quite inspirational, being inspired through limitation without compromise to our products, without compromise to utility and beauty is a, a wonderful frame to set my design staff on because it'll conjure new aesthetics and new utilities and new performance. At the same time, it's really thoughtful about how to caretake the planet. Yes. Sorry, dude, you got me on a totally different, totally different tack there, but thank you for the question. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, listen, it, it's sort of, um, it feels very familiar to me. So I'm, I'm an actor and part of my training as, as an actor and an artist was that we were tasked with standing for something. So yes, one can interpret a text and you can give this, this character life, but what are you standing for with your art? What are the things that you, with your art, with your talent are standing for? What principles do you espouse? And that brought that back. And it is, it's That's a, right. That's right. You've talked about it before. It's a call to arms for artists, not merely to do the thing, the gift that they have, their innate power, but it's, it's what you are tasked with doing with it, which is equally important. Yeah, and I think, at least as I've progressed in my, my career, my thinking, my, oh, God, my, my wisdom, <laughs> my intellect, I think, you know, you begin to really hyper-focus on the, the systemic things that you can change and systemic things you can design towards, which aren't necessarily about specifics of, in my case, you know, an individual product or an individual store or a logo or website. It's what are the systems that we put in place that change thinking, that have, you know, seismic impact on the world around us? And and for me, this notion of designing for more of a circularity, so being able to return products and reuse and reimagine, remake over and over and over again, and having this very conscious citizens approach to wanting to sustain sport and therefore the water, the air that we breathe, the land that we play on. I just think that has a bigger, uh, it's a bigger call to action. Mm. And certainly it is the design problem of our lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I'd love to ask you about inspiration. You work for Michael Graves and he was a mentor of yours. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. Very much so. I love talking about creativity uh, on this pod, but I equally love talking about the people who've inspired us, the teachers, parents. And a mentor like that <laughs> absolutely needs to be talked about. Yeah, yeah. I was really fortunate <laughs> to uh, come out of my undergraduate uh, school and degree 
with a chance to work for Michael Graves. Yeah, you landed on your feet there. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and you know, if anything, you know, this idea of adversity. I I had applied for roles there at least half a dozen times, and I I still have those rejection letters inside the book that he signed to me when I left to go to graduate school, and he That's so did a good. drawing for me in a lovely inscription, and it's sort of this. <laughs> ode to persistence that I share with a few people, mostly my children. Yes. You know, what it takes to be able to break through. Let me go back a second. So when I was coming out of school, again, my parents were incredibly insightful and my high school guidance counselors, et cetera, at the time, you know, I, I, they didn't know really what I was to do. I was, a, I was a terrible, terrible test taker. I had, to this day, I still have testing anxiety. I read very slowly and my comprehension is it takes a lot of concentration for me to, to really comprehend things. So yeah. we were talking about learning a trade, et cetera. And I had turned my drawing into an artistic merit. So I was excellent at drafting my penmanship. I was top of the class and you know, hand drafting on drafting tables. But I also had art. So I was doing painting and sketching and sculpting, et cetera. And in the States, you know, not your A-levels, but your SAT level scores. I like to say fondly that the total SAT score that I had was about the calorie count on a can of Coca-Cola. So really <laughs> low, really low. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I had a chance to sort of blend my passion for art and sport because as I was a good artist, I was also a pretty decent athlete. And I had a chance to maybe, you know, play some ath- athletics in college, but I got a break by going to interview at Penn State, which my father had set up, because I was not going to enter any program of a major university because of my scores. They were terrible, Jude. But I had a chance to interview the dean of the arts and architecture program, a gentleman named Renario Corbelletti. And when I met with him, he was a German after the war, came to the States, was teaching architecture, came from the Bauhaus. And right away, he and I clicked, and he was dyslexic. And he shared with me something I'll never forget. He asked me if I had what he called a mirror hand, which I do, which means to me, I can write. I'm both left and right-handed. I've become right-handed because that's what the school's taught me to do. But I can still write left-handed. And a mirror hand means I can write completely mirrored, backwards and forwards. So, wow. Yeah, and so he's the only other person whom I ever met in my life that shared that with me so i I, he said well show me and i literally signed my name completely mirror left and right hand with two pens and i'm not sure if that was it or not if it was i guess that was the luck of serendipity at the moment but i was allowed into that program and i was one of five students admitted for artistic merit not for academic merit and so i knew i was smart I knew I had a decent IQ. I knew I was, you know, I could hustle like nobody. But what I didn't have was I didn't have the the test scores. So five of us entered the program with over 120 total students. I studied architecture in a five-year program, incredibly rigorous. We graduated 28. Of the 28, the five of us artistic merit graduated. Of those, the top three in our class were the artistic merits. I was number three. So I tell that story because, you know, it's a, it's a chance to just say you, you just gotta you just gotta keep resilient and you gotta keep persistent. Yes. And it's okay to say, hey, my test scores were terrible. That is not a measure of my intellect. 
That's a nice. measure of my testing recall, which I'm not good at. And so nowadays, you know, tests are done differently. But anyway, so got through college in my last year at school, I started bombarding the Michael Graves office with all of my desires and abilities. And it was the number one place to work in 1987, 88. So I got rejection after rejection. And then one day on the bulletin board, a note came from his office that said they were seeking a hand model maker, somebody who could make great architectural models with your hands. And because of my, my fastidiousness and my, my craftsmanship on both penmanship and making, I signed up. And you know what? I got an interview. I drove down to Princeton, New Jersey, and I met with the, the head of the department. And Amazing. I built two models specifically in Michael Graves' style to show up at my interview. And you know, lo and behold, I got that job. <laughs> and <laughs> that was a wonderful way to start my career. I like to say that in the pecking order of Michael Graves, it was him, the professor emeritus at Princeton, the principal of his firm, then there was the senior advisors, the associates, the designers, the architects, et cetera. Then there was like, you know, the gardener, and then there was the plumber, then there was me, the model maker. <laughs> I was the lowest in the totem pole because we worked like crazy. And but the best the best thing about this was I sat, you know, at arm's length away from the guy for a year and just built model after model. And finally, you know, one day picked up his head and just said, Hey, aren't you an architect? I said, Yeah. He goes, Well, you should go upstairs. And I was like, Well, okay, cool. And so I started to migrate my way up. And at the ripe young age of 22, three years old, there's so much work in the office. I was doing custom private residences. I was wow. doing corporate headquarters, is doing exhibits and graphics. And the thing that I took from Michael was he was also um, most likely dyslexic. He drew like it was crazy. And his love of drawing reinforced to me my own love of drawing. The sitting alone with pencils and paper and discovering what's inside yeah. of you became just one of the most important lessons I've, I've ever learned. And I was really fortunate to have him as a direct and indirect mentor up through his passing a few years back. And I'm happy to say one of the last things that, that we did was I, I helped pay to have him fly out to Portland, Oregon to defend his very first building called the Portland Building. And if you're a postmodern architect, that was a seminal building that pivoted architectural styling forever. And uh, that building was going to be torn down by the city. And Michael came out and defended it in front of the public. And rather than tear it down, they gave him $50 million to reinvest and reface it. Wow. He passed and died since then. But that building stands in my city still proudly. And I had a chance to, in some microscopic way, kind of give back to him and, and help sustain that building. So full circle, I think, there. Yeah. That education that you were given working in his office on all those projects, and that, that must be invaluable to be exposed to that amount of variation at such a formative age. That must have been incredible. Jude, it was the, the type of work and how busy we were. So, and the exposure of, at the time, you know, the cultural business leaders of the world all came through that office in Princeton. So, think about you know, Alfred Taubman, the owner of the Federation Retail, yeah. Michael Eisner at Disney. Yeah. I mean, there's every single uh, Hollywood star came through to do a house. So it was this revolving door of the who's who and who's next in culture. 
And I think that really fueled the office for, uh, for, for years. And, you know, it was an electric time to be in that office during the height of the postmodern movement. And then to, you know, just to see him flourish and then move into the Target offering, which I don't know if you are familiar with the Target stores in the U.S., but yes, yes, he brought his line of thinking to Target to everyday design objects. So this idea of accessible domesticity by increasing the style quotient in the American household was a revolution back in the early 2000s. And, and Michael was able to up the design IQ of the American public in many ways. So I wasn't there for that. I had moved on through graduate school and had landed my job at Nike, which I should tell you how I got that. Please, yeah. And then I was off to the races here. So you may have read the story, <laughs> Jude. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll try to paraphrase it for your audience if I could. So you now know, I, I often lead with saying, you know, to begin with, I'm dyslexic. And what that meant to me was I had a series of gifts and a series of challenges. And as a young boy, I lead language, native tongue, drawing, and I drew everything. And shoes was one of the things I loved to draw, even as a young kid. Yeah. So as I grew up as a young boy, I'm and talking 10, 11, 12 years old, I used to sit in my room and draw shoes. And I simultaneously was a pretty good athlete, and I was able to you know, run with the older kids at the time, cross country and track and field, etc. I noticed all these kids were running in the Nike sneakers, which I I guess I couldn't afford, but I loved. And so I started drawing Nike shoes. And once in a while, I'd get a pair and I would wear them out and I, I would you know, cut them in half and study the section, the insides of them. So one summer, I was floating on a raft in a pool and I was you know, sort of thinking about, well, what, what if I could shrink this raft and wrap it around my foot and maybe that would help my rear foot uh, cushion and transition to four foot toe off. And would that help my gait, my spring? And so yeah. I just said, I'm going to try to shrink this raft. And so I ended up drawing <laughs> these blueprints of putting a raft under your foot. And I, lo and behold, showed it to my father, who was an engineer. And I can vaguely remember him saying, well, that's really cool. Like, what do you want to do? And so I brought in my orange box promptly, which was the Nike box. <laughs> and I said, I, I want to send to this company because I put this logo on the side. <laughs> I think this company would be really interested in this idea. So I went to the library because there was no internet and to look up through the business channels Phil Knight. So yeah, I ended kids, up writing... kids, if you're listening, ask your parents what a library is. They'll be able yeah. to tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's an old building <laughs> full of information. So you had to actually go to a physical building. So I ended up finding the address and Phil Knight, the co-founder and the president of the business. And I wrote him this letter on schoolhead paper. I said, I'm 12 years old. I'm a fan of your company. I'm a runner. I love to draw shoes. Here's an idea I have for a raft under your foot, an air an airbag. Put it in the mail, didn't think anything of it. Lo and behold, a couple weeks later, I got a note back sitting on my, framed on my office, actually. Oh, um, my God. It just says, hey, super cool idea. Love to hear from folks like you. We, we're working on something. Here's some a t-shirt and a pair of shoes. Oh, it's amazing. When you go old enough, you should come work for me. So <laughs> I was like, I just put that away in my drawer. Never thought about it. Moved through graduate school. And I had rekindled my interest in Nike because a book had come out about this things called Nike Towns, which was retail stores. And one of the projects I was doing in Michael Graves was a lot of retail stores for Alessa and Lennox China and just different retail outlets that Michael was designing. And so I was asked to give a lecture in graduate school on health wellness imagery and architecture. And I had 
this crazy idea of sort of marrying Richard Neutra's Southern California anti-tuberculosis modernity with the Nike. <laughs> very specific. Vision. Yeah, no, I, well, I had to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to focus it on modernity and the future. So the future I brought in was this idea of Nike, a company who was manifesting an ethos of design, both through product, but also through physical stores and physicality of space. So I th- reached out to the director of design at the time. I thanked him for my slides. Kids' slides were photographs that you could put a light through and shine on the wall <laughs> before there was yeah. iPads and everything else. Yeah. And I sent the slides back and I sent a letter and I thanked him for that. I gave him a quick recap of the lecture. And that started a correspondence. And if you know anything about me from my previous conversations with you, I'm pretty persistent. Yeah. So yeah. I kept bombarding him with, okay, so here's what I'm doing. This is what I'm interested in. This is where I'm going. This is what I want. And so phone calls, letters, finally got a break. They flew me out and I interviewed. (laughs) And actually I interviewed with all the top folks in the company. And the last person was the director in design. And I took that letter from my bedroom and I snuck it and put it in the back of my portfolio. So when I sat down and opened my, my portfolio, when we got to the very end of the images that I was showing about my work, I pulled this out of the back and I put it down in front of it and and I said, I'm here to redeem this coupon that you sent me in the late (laughs) seventies. And that sealed the deal. So I'm a big believer in destiny and making your own luck through hard work. And so that is the story of how I got here. And, you know, once you're here for me to be knocking on the door of three decades leading design it takes a lot of willpower. It takes a lot of hard work yeah. and a lot of presence to be able to grow your staff. In my case, from 100 to over 1,200 designers has been nothing short of a gift and a blessing. Wow. That's just blown me away. What a story. <laughs> Incredible. I want to jump on so many things yeah. from that, but I'd love to start with, you talk about creating realms. So... John has just started opening up these houses of innovation. Um, There's one in Paris, one in Shanghai. I think there's going to be one in London. New York City, yeah. New York City is up, yeah. I've been to the one in New York. That's the one I've been to. Okay. I think, yes. So I lived in Shanghai for a year, but I, um, yes, I I don't think it was there when when I was there. So essentially, some of the best jobs I've done as an actor was with a company called Punch Drunk. Okay. They do Sleep No More in New York. And... Felix, the artistic director of Maxine, they're all about opening up worlds and realms. It feels very much like that. It's immersing, in this case, the consumer, but of course, in, in my case, the audience, in a different realm, a different way of seeing and perceiving the world and its possibilities. Um, so I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, you know, I'm, again, being at the company for close to 30 years, when I joined, our company was beginning to roll out our Nike Town stores. And Nike Town was one of the first manifestations of, at the time it was called entertainment retail, but really what it was was a chance to immerse our consumers in a physical way, the essence and and the feeling of our brand and to kind of conjure that feeling of participating in sports, either as an athlete or as a spectator and feeling that emotional draw to a brand and so we you know we use those as museums and theme park rides almost to kind of conjure this and elicit this, this emotional response to being fully immersed in all the senses uh, sight sound smell 
some of the intangibles of a, a sense of place, a presence in the place. And so I was so lucky because I was able to do a lot of the Nike town stores, including the one in London back in 1999. Oh, wow. But I was able to be a part of the big one in New York City, which was 1996. And that was you know, a seminal project for me in my career at the company and frankly in my life. And what was so great was to be able to kind of sunset that Nike town store in New York City 25 years later and open up the Nike House of Innovation. And so to kind of bring back some of those same principles, all be them accelerated because of the times that we live in, but to sort of reimagine and rescope what a fully immersive, plural reality retail environment we're, we're living in. And so that, that was quite something. So the House of Innovation for us listeners is, it's kind of a tour de force. It is. It's the combination of a museum, it's a workshop, it's a theme park ride. It's, yeah. it's all those things. We're, we're trying to communicate through all facets of design, uh, product design, graphic design, multimedia design, architecture, sound design, lighting design, mm. the written word and the way that we storytell at the next level. And so if you haven't been, I would, if you're close to one, I would encourage you to be a part of that. But really the job for us there is to serve and inspire the future athlete. So serving them by giving them information, listening to what their needs are, offering products if they'd like those, and inspiring them to find their own personal best. Because we believe that human potential is um, the most important thing that we, we dwell in, by having everyone find their own human potential. And you know, I've been sort of commenting on this fidgetality of the future, the physical digital blending together. And I think it's more fluid today than it's ever been. And so, you know, we all have phones in our pockets and iPads and advanced computer technologies that were landing folks on the moon 50 years ago. We have that in our pocket. And sort of finding this tension and blur between the physical and the digital and having these sort of plural realities. For us in, at Nike, and as we design the store, the journey to the store begins well before you're there. It begins on your phone. It begins with a query. Yeah. And as you move through our store, that device you have and the things that you're around are all coordinated. And even as you leave, the experience extends with you. So I think it's this blurred engagement, which I think is going to be the future, and this idea of the polarities uh, that we're dealing with in the hyper-physical and the hyper-digital. And when those two meet, it's important. I also... I'm a big believer in, you know, some things change and th some things stay the same. You know, as, as humans, I think we're hardwired to be social beings. Yeah. And what I mean is that I think we need to commune. I think we need to connect physically. Yes. And that's what's so challenging in the times of COVID. But I go back to my architectural teachings and studying the agoras in Greece. You know, those are the first marketplaces, which were the assembly of people to bring goods and services and ideas together and even in today's world that is necessary you know i think we all ache for a time when we can assemble and convene and sort of have all the senses firing yes so that's what the house of innovation is all about for us and we have plans to do quite a bit more there and i think it's this perfect marriage of all the best of the physicality of sports and all the best of creating communities in physical worlds, but also in digital worlds, and having that convergence be net positive. Yeah, it reminded me, I don't know whether you 
um, had the pleasure and privilege of seeing there's a Bowie uh, retrospective exhibition. I think it was before he died. They had all of his costumes and a lot of his, you know, LPs and sort of a lot of uh, iconography from his canon, but uh, a lot of it was centered around his his costume because it was at the VNA, which I'm sure you know well. Oh yeah, and you could get a headset. Everyone was given a headset, and it would it would just start wherever you were. It would start an interview with you know whoever Keith Richards talking about him stealing a lick for Rebel Rebel, or you know the inspiration for the White Duke, or when he was in his Hamlet phase, or whatever it was, Aladdin Zane. You were not bombarded because it was so tastefully rendered. But it was everything. It was that technology being with the physical and it was a communion because, of course, you know, I don't know about you, but Bowie certainly features so heavily in my life. And his, and his, uh, when he died, I grieved for him as if I would a family member. And so it all felt like we were, there was a collective catharsis. We were all going through looking at this incredible person and his life's work. And it was so beautifully put together. There was something about, there's something of that when I went around the New York store that it, it was, you know, sort sort of like a sensorial overload, sound, written word, pictures, but it was, I mean, yeah, it's it's very very cool, very very cool. First off, all time favorite musician David Bowie, and I <laughs> grew up on the Ziggy Stardust collection and all the way through to the oh yeah some of the latest albums, and so I I too, I mean, we lost a, you know, I'm an absolute one of a kind master and. Yes. Somebody whom I would reflect on was able to be ultimately agile and adaptable and always right on tone with what was needed in the world. Yes. So, yeah, a, a brilliant creative mind. And, you know, I think your, your point is this sort of complete, well-curated, holistic, sensorial experience where when you have one or two of those, you kind of ache for more because... Yeah, it's like your brain is firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and you you've kind of coordinated your intellectual curiosity and wonderment, your emotional spirit, your physical spirit, all kind of coming together. And what's great about that for us and Nike and is because that's what sports is about. When when athletes find that uh, peak performance, that they call it flow. And I've been able to witness flow as an athlete, but also as a designer and a creative mm. and artist. Is that you know, flow is the perfect sense. It's the perfect form. Oh, completely. Time yeah. slows down. You, everything gets heightened up. And yeah. yeah, again, I think being dyslexic, you know, I've been able to tap into that. And I love those moments. And those moments are unplanned for me. So I always carry a, a tiny sketchbook and one of those NASA space pens I can put in my pocket. <laughs> Funny enough, last night I got up in the middle of the night and I haven't been back to sleep since. I just had an idea and I was like, oh shit, I just gotta, I just gotta write this down. <laughs> I just gotta start. <laughs> and it just took me four hours and I apologize for swearing, but it just took me two hours to get that out. No, uh, that's, all yeah. good. that's wonderful. I mean, yeah, as, as a performer, there have been the times on stage or if you're in front of a camera where you can achieve that flow state where you've done your work and to use a sort of actor's polish, you can leave yourself alone and it just yeah, flows great, out. Great saying. Yeah. When you leave yourself alone. Isn't that a great feeling? It's great. It's a great feeling. It's so, so wonderful. But it takes it takes a lot of work. It does. Certainly, as an actor, it takes an awful lot of work to get to that place where you can leave yourself alone, and you're just well. In my case, behaving. You're behaving as a character would. You're living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, trying to achieve an objective. Yeah, 
And of course, I mean, that's actually what you're doing as, as well is, you know, you have a, you have a real problem, an objective that you need to solve, and then you imagine the set of circumstances around it that might be an obstacle to achieving it. That's right. And, you know, something you, you said, Jude, I think the audience needs to hear is that this is hard work. And as we spoke earlier, you know, recognizing that this is a gift is important, but having a gift and being gifted are two different things, right? Uh, completely. Having a gift and nourishing and nurturing <laughs> and working that gift lets you become gifted. Mm. But that takes really hard work. Yeah. So whenever I'm talking to dyslexic students, families, educators, etc., you know, I always say I have to apologize, but it's going to take really a lot of work. And mm. When you work hard, you you can glimpse the fact that it'll pay off. And I don't know what that means to everybody, but the payoff means that you are able to contribute at a very high level. And and that's wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. Humor me. <laughs> this yeah, this sure. fright of fancy. <laughs> say we're not in COVID land. Yeah. Say you can go to your office and you can gather about you your <laughs> trusted designers. Uh -huh. I presume all 1200 of them just just uh, just in the room what does a day look like for you you know a, a creative day because this is what i yeah. again what i love asking people who are creatives for a living is how they approach that flow state how you get to creating a sneaker creating a hoodie creating a building yeah you know again pre-covid times for me i'll take you through my day more typically than not i would sort of get up early, get a workout in, I treadmill, I bike, I row, I do yoga, et cetera. And that begins my day with having accomplished something, which is I have to move my body. Jude, if my body doesn't move, my, my brain is stagnant. Absolutely. I'm the same way. Yeah. I found that an, an idle body means an idle imagination. So, you know, I really, I really push to get myself up and out and working. And then sort of this meditation that I have is, you know, to, to live with wonder to presume that I don't know anything, and yet I'm super curious about everything. So that meditation yeah. sits with me on the commute to work, and uh, typically I my day would be more like a kind of a creative mayor because my town is so big, <laughs> 1,200 designers. Yeah. What I've come to is that as the chief design officer for the company and the creative director for the company, I can't bind our output by what I can personally do. In fact, I don't draw and design singular shoes. I design ideas to get to collections of products. So my day would be walking and interfacing with large and small teams, large, a thousand, small, one. And I find myself as a creative director becoming more of a sculptor and I'm sculpting with other people's hearts and hands. So I'm trying to inspire and direct and channel energies into uh, a set of standards of excellence. And then my prime job with my staff when I'm giving design critiques or design feedback is to put them in their own sense of flow and give them truthful, authentic feedback that wants them to get up tomorrow morning and come back and make it better and solve it. And so, you know, I've had to become pretty good at articulating holding a standard of excellence pushing on the creatives to not compromise and yet feeling okay when they do so that they'll get back up in the next day 
and come back and try to push again. The tombstone for me would probably be progress, not perfection. Hmm. I'm someone who is just absolutely driven on making progress by the hour, by the day, by the second, and recognizing that perfection is somewhat of a trap. So we're never going to be perfect. Yeah. Just keep making progress and keep, you know, keep pushing. Yeah. For that progress. Yeah. By the time I'm done, I usually conclude my day just mostly just sitting at my desk and I have a handful of sketchbooks and notepads that I have. I try to leave my day with organizing my thoughts again because that, that's important for me so that my commute home and my evening is spent savoring some of the things I've been thinking about, which begins my late uh, night, early dream cycling because I find, I find that my work is ever present. My creative thinking is ever present. I yeah. can't turn it off. So, and you know, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. I use my my dream state to pressure test ideas. As I just said, I woke up this morning. I was like, I've been noodling on this thing, and it just came to me <laughs> three in the morning. Mm. So, I'm up mm. on the iPad trying to capture it as best I can. It's very um David Lynch. I don't know if you've ever read. You know, he's into TM and. I think his book is called something like Catching the Big Fish, and he describes ideas, uh, you know, floating around your consciousness. And the more you get into the habit of thinking creatively, the more those big fish just appear. You know, you don't have to fish so hard for them. If I'm, I'm really labouring yeah. the fishing metaphor, but he he sort of draws it out in his book. But it just reminded me of that. Yeah. So you're you're an enabler, and do you find yourself doing what Michael Graves did to you is being a mentor to lots of people. I do. Yeah. And it's a funny thing to be a mentor and a mentee simultaneously. And I've kind of come to the fact of this is super important to me. I don't view myself as some grand mentor. I view myself as, again, I don't presume to know a lot. Jude, I presume to be really curious. And along the path, I've learned a thing or two. And so, you know, now more than ever at my life stage and my career stage, I'm I'm trying to elicit that living with wonder, permanent curiosity, hard work that's required. And I think people seek me out. My door is open all to <laughs> vice presidents down to our interns because I'm just so interested in, in talking to people. And I, I thought I was an introvert up until COVID. I think I'm an introvert with extroversion because <laughs> I like to talk to people. And so in that way, I think you're right. I am an enabler. And that's a role that hasn't come naturally, but has I've evolved into over time. And it's something that I cherish, to be quite frank with you. Yeah. I want to say, so I'm, I'm a big believer that dyslexics, their brains work in quite an aesthetic-driven way. And obviously, you're someone who shapes spaces and shapes the way people dress, the things that they put on their bodies. How much do you think you you view the world from an aesthetic point of view, and then how does that then become deeper? I think it is the, if my primary language was drawing, my primary intake are my eyes. And the way that I see and perceive the world is highly, highly visual. And I have a very powerful visual memory for film, for photography, for art, yes, uh, for me obviously too. buildings and spaces. And so, I can recall crazy snippets out of scenes of movies that people go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'll Google it. Yes. And it's like, oh, that was that artist. That was, I've just purchased some art from Alan McCullum. And I've said, I've seen this before. It's in the movie American Psycho. It's in his apartment in the hallway, right to the entrance of the first scene when he meets his secretary. 
people are like, what are you talking about? Like, Just trust me, go Google it. Sure enough, it's there. So as an example, I have that sort of visual memory in yes. a catalog in my brain that, that I draw on. I don't always get it right. Trust me, but it's there. It's there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it's a triggering to the way I think. That's my party trick. I can be like, listen, that actor was in that film this time. They've also <laughs> been in this, this film, this film, this film, this film. That's the music that was playing in that scene. Visually, I can recall things yeah. to the nth degree in a detail. Yeah. I always call out when it's like, oh, that's the same. So that set is the same location that was shot X, Y, and Z. <laughs> what do you mean? That's the same building. No, it's the exact same building. And you go back and you're like, oh, right, that's the same building, the same lobby, same exterior. And I don't know, just something that I, it registers with me. So it, it's a trigger. Visualization is a trigger. And, you know, I have also found, back to your David Lynch point, I found that occasionally when I soften my gaze, I don't focus too hard. When it's, it's the softening, it's the commute, it's the workout, it's the sleep where the big fish emerge and it's when i'm not really paying attention it just kind of comes and i've learned as i mentioned last night i've learned that i've got to pay attention because i've let many big fishes go (laughs) or presumably big fishes have been squandered because i haven't paid attention i found in my own mind that's just the way it works and so when i when it's there i have to seize that moment and I have to play it out. When I loosen the grip, when I loosen the gaze, things come to me more naturally. For sure. I mean, so I'm a, an actor and I'm also a, a personal trainer as well, you know. So when I'm hustling outside of the acting game in order to make sure I've got the bills paid, etc., and I found actually they were so conducive to, to helping each other out, you know, because I need to be creative with people's workouts, with keeping the, them engaged. And then when I could then work myself out and really, you know, I found for my own mental well-being as well, I really exhausted myself, lifting big, you know, pushing myself when I feel tired. It actually was great for me in terms of my own mental well-being, my own mental health, but it also then meant creatively, yeah, my brain was more open to those fishes potentially dropping into my net. Totally agree. I came to yoga late in my life, and I've the more vigorous I am in yoga, and again, the gaze is much wider because I feel like I'm I'm using a spiritual emotional part of my being and I'm I'm exhausting the physical part so I'm giving way to that um I can't tell you how much that has has helped me <laughs> just continue to grow and to be able to pick up on the nuances and the senses of your body being a trainer you know when you stress your body your body's giving you probably a thousand times more signals what's going on and yeah signal to noise strength ratios super important so if i'm really busting a bike ride or a, a run or something i notice that my neurons are just electric like i'm totally on yes and that's why that's why i carry a stupid little sweaty sketchbook and a pen because i stop literally in the midst of like okay i gotta take take this and i'm just chewing on that thought and I run you know, farther and faster, or I bike faster, and I forget. Yeah. So I, now I take phone messages. I got funny <laughs> you know, voice memos of me panting into my phone. I could barely hear what I'm saying, but some big fish had something to say. <laughs> I had to capture it down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My notes in my, uh, on my phone, they're just 
rammed with like half articulated ideas and then I, you know, read them back and I'm like, shit, it got away. Whatever it was that fish was, <laughs> I didn't properly articulate yeah. what it was because I was in that flow state and you're sort of, yep. you're blown away by this idea and then you fuck. I, I can't, yeah, I, I can't it, yeah. decipher I what that it. is. I missed it. Uh, but you know, I say this oftentimes because people always go, hey, you know, how do you get inspired and word ideas come? And I'm like, ideas never present themselves to me as a solution. It's presented as an abstraction. And if, if I get a good enough glimpse at it, I can convert it to a solution. Yeah. If I don't, then the glimpse wasn't strong enough or the signal to noise wasn't right. But you just got to pay attention to those things. You do. Absolutely. I've never had an idea present itself as an idea. Here's the solution. Yeah. I've had it presented as, here's something to think about. Have you, have you connected this dot with that dot yet? Or it's like, I don't know if it feels the same way to you. It's like, it's half of something. You're like, this feels interesting. I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not entirely sure what it's the solution to, but it might be something. It might be interesting. It might work with this. And then it sort of develops. I write as well. Yeah. And oftentimes it's, it is doing what you're doing. It's sculpting. It's chipping away at it and shaping it. And it just it's just coming out of you. There's nothing you can do. You just got to get out of the way of it and then yeah. allow it to be what it will be perfectly articulated because i i often times have to tell myself you're in its way <laughs> like yeah. you have to yeah. you have to let it out and it's going to fumble out in inarticulate ways but you you don't get in its way because it isn't it's got to come all the way out before you look at it and go oh there's something magic here yeah for sure and that's sure. it you know creativity like anything that you practice, it takes training, right? I mean, it's, it's not something it that you can put away. It's something that you have to hone and practice and build upon day yeah. to day. Do you still draw in your day to day? Oh, gosh, Jude, all I do is draw. I, I'm sitting in my <laughs> office and I, I have six sketchbooks in front of me and I've been doodling the entire time we're talking. Yeah, I was um, going to say, I bet you've been doodling the whole time. I have, and that's... yeah. I find that when I move my hand, I'm, I'm more articulate. I'm, I'm actually paying attention. Yes. And I, as I said, I think, you know, an idle hand for me is not good. So yeah. whenever I'm like in business meetings, I, <laughs> I litter the margins with sneakers and buildings and logos and shirts and words and pictures and people. And now they're just like, yep, that's, that's pretty much what he does. So, so. <laughs> Yeah, it's not personal. He's just he's just thinking. No, and you know, as a young kid, I they were like, you know, can you pay attention? I'm like, you don't get it. This is how I pay attention. Yeah. You know? And I used to always I hated that. I hated when people say, can you pay attention? I'm like, no, I, I am paying attention. I'm I'm doing this to help me pay attention. Well, it looks like you're yeah. distracted. No, I'm not distracted. This is actually strengthening my ability. And I also hated, can you just try harder? <laughs> that one never yeah. got me. I'm trying as hard as I can, and it's more difficult for me. So Yeah, it's funny you say that because there's a beautiful anecdote. So my last guest, Mads, who's a Norwegian artist, he was, in order to decipher what the teacher was saying, he, he'd have to draw it. He's an animator. He, there's a beautiful film of his on YouTube called I Am Dyslexic. Oh, nice. Which is gorgeous. It's really it's sort of like Miyazaki-infused, sort of Quentin Blake-esque. But anyway, he, was, he tried to write things down. It wasn't really working, and he'd draw it. And then they took away his paper and then he, he was so miserable and felt like he was falling so far behind, he'd carve it into the desk. 
and you know they thought he was a problem <laughs> child but he was like you're not understanding i i need to draw because if i don't i'm gonna fall behind everybody else more than i have done before my parents used to say to my grade school teachers john in his book reports half my paper would be these hieroglyphics and it was just me using imagery to set myself up to convert the imagery to words and they said, oh it's so distracting and so the gimmick that my teachers and my parents would talk to me about was pretend you were writing a newspaper and the newspaper had a picture in it and had a, a headline copy and had a you know the paper name and i did that so i i just was my parents had sent some early school things and they were saying it's amazing how you know you literally were designing graphic design you'd be doing more drawing than writing and what was amazing was that your teachers would allow you to do that and i put a lot of that on my parents to helping teachers understand well this is the way this child learns and it's going to be different so when you look at his his words and they're all spelled incorrectly and every letter is upside down or backwards if you connect them to the pictures he's got that'll be a start and then we can work with him on the mechanics of changing the way he thinks about the alphabet and how he uses it and how he creates letters and which create words which create sentences and you know i put a great deal of faith in those around us dyslexics that can nourish our gift and understand it and take it for its face value and and think about it as a superpower and converting that absolutely superpower into you know i get up every morning and i put on my cape and my cape has a big d on it <laughs> it's not an s <laughs> right <laughs> i'm glad i would not uh change anything about the way i think and learn well listen we've got to give a shout out then to the teachers and parents who help enable inspire and push their dyslexic children and relatives because really it does take it takes a village um to raise a child but it takes does it take a city then to, to raise a dyslexic? So yeah, we got to give some love to them for sure. Yeah, you know, I would just say that being one dyslexic, I I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have uh, loving parents. And I know that's not available Amen. to all. Mm. And open teachers, and I know that's not available to all. So I recognize that I have had privilege in my upbringing and I'm incredibly blessed and lucky to have that. Not all have that. So yeah. I think for us as as dyslexics who can lead a path forward just recognizing that everyone around these children can help them be great and that's all they want they just want to feel great about themselves sure. they want to know that they're special that they have incredible gifts and that those gifts will be deeply meaningful to the world around us we'll need them yeah we'll need them to make the future artistic and bright and, and to solve the problems of the world so thank you teachers and students and educators yeah and i echo all of that that was so beautifully and succinctly put and i want to thank you john for your time because i've loved it i've absolutely loved it dear listener uh, john asked me how long this would take as we were sort of you know talking preliminary and i've kept him for 45 minutes longer than than i was oh, intending no to oh nice yeah. but there you go that's that's where the time goes when you're when you're having fun and you're engaged yeah. so thank you so much yeah thank you so much too it's a pleasure You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today was the Chief Design Officer of Nike, John Hoke. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe 
wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org.